Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. We bring you the very best recorded panels, workshops, and seminars concerning role-playing game design and publishing. This has been made possible by the generous contributions of the panel speakers and double exposure with their leading game design convention, Metatopia. Episode 89 Game Mechanics as Social Engineering and Social Engineering as Game Design Recorded at Metatopia 2015 Presented by Jason Morningstar and John Stavropoulos Okay, great. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome. Uh, just to make sure you're all in the right place, this is the Game Mechanics is Social Engineering, and Social Engineering is Game Design. Is anybody in the wrong place, you still have a time to get away. Not so much? Okay. Can we close these doors? That would be helpful. And while the doors are always closed, feel free to leave at any time. You're not captivated to stay. But we do hope to be informative and make it worth your time. And we're, right, we're going to... This will end five minutes early, so we'll have time to get to whatever the next thing is. Right, we take pictures? It's okay with me. I'm totally okay with pictures. Thank you for asking. Can you guys hear us in the back? Okay. Yes. Excellent. So just in terms of questions, there are going to be uh, possibly several moments in this talk uh, where we'll reach out to the audience and ask you questions. But in terms of general questions, we're going to leave that for the last 15 minutes. I've set a timer for that. So for general questions, again, we're going to leave that for the last 15 minutes. And we're going to try to end at like maybe one to five minutes early so that folks can move on to the next thing because I know it's very tight. Cool. That said, let's do introductions. Who are you? Oh, hey, I'm Jason Morningstar. I think I know many of you, uh, but those of you who don't, I am uh, half of Bully Pulpit Games, so I design uh, analog tabletop role-playing games and also live-action role-playing games. Cool. I'm John Stavropoulos, uh, and I don't so much work in the game design RPG world, but what I do for my full-time job is I work as a system designer slash product manager working for software for the Department of Child Services, which involves a lot of game design, which I can get into a little bit later. That's true. And I think we both have, uh, we come tangentially to this from usability in different ways. Yes, definitely. Cool. So in terms of what we're here to talk about, it sounds like the core question is, do mechanics influence behavior? Are you asking me, John? I am asking you that. <laughs> Jason, does, do mechanics influence behavior? I think they do, but I think we should probably define some terms before we get too deep in the weeds. <laughs> that sounds great. So it sounds like, I mean, I, I've posed four words there, but it seems like three of those words are key here. I know. So uh, mechanics influence a behavior. How would you define mechanics? Man, that's a good question. <laughs> so so uh, uh, I, I don't think any of these necessarily have canonical answers. And I think that there's lots of room to agree or disagree with what we're talking about here today. Mm -hmm. So I just want to state that up front, that you will have perhaps different feelings, perhaps strong feelings, that we are uh, not right in the way that we're, uh, we're, we're approaching these things. But when I think of mechanics, uh, I think of that as a subset of system, which I think of as everything that influences the play of a game. So the social contract, the circumstances that you're in, uh, and then rules and procedures that... Uh, perhaps influence, yeah. 
uh, behavior? Yeah, I would, I would say so. Okay, that's, that's how about great. you? Is that, does that... Uh, Drive that, with you? that drives with me, and I, I want to emphasize as we go through this and we give examples. What I hope to do is I might I would hope that we go through some examples that might first be obvious and break down maybe why they're working and the, and the context in which they're working, but also give some examples that are not obvious, things that you might not think of the mechanics, but that definitely influence behavior and could fall within that category. Sounds good. What about influence, John? Cool influence. So I would consider influence uh, in this situation factoring into your decision making whether consciously or unconsciously right so there's many things going on uh, and when I ultimately choose to take an action what are all the things that my brain has considered as part of that choice whether I've cognitively considered it like oh here's my pros and cons here's what I want to do or in the moment just based on everything that's built up at that point what drives that decision so another question related to that if influence is unconscious is that manipulation uh, so I know a lot of people don't like the word manipulation. I, I do not have a word problem with the word manipulation personally. I think that uh, manipulation, persuasion could be considered manipulative. If I am giving a proposal uh, in, in front of an audience about, let's say, uh, a new concept, I might try to say, here's the things why I think this is good, here's where areas in which I think maybe it's less good, it depends on your context, but if I'm using persuasive words and I'm making arguments, you could argue that I'm manipulating people, but I don't view that as a negative thing. Especially if it is uh, informed and there's a level of transparency. So like from a game design perspective, for me personally, and again, this is just me personally, you might feel otherwise, I always like to make uh, the rules of a game, especially if I'm running a LARP, available in some form or fashion, and I set expectations at the beginning of here's the experience we're going for, here's uh, generally where we're going and how we're going to go about it, and if anybody has concerns, they can read the actual information of the, of themselves and come up with decisions if this is an activity they want to opt into. Well, that's an interesting segue into behavior. Oh, yeah. So, Jason, since you asked me about influence, I'm going to ask you about behavior. So, uh, by behavior, what do you mean? Well, uh, I, mean, I mean, I think that it would probably be easier to come to consensus on that than either of the other two. Um, behavior is uh, the, the way that people interact uh, on the social level in a, in a play space. Uh, help, me with, help me with that. Uh, so, behaviors. I think uh, when I talked about influence, I used the word choices several times. So I feel like behaviors, I would tie that to choices. It's the sort of things that are motivating those choices. So right? you're thinking of discrete uh, actions. Yeah, I'm okay. thinking about very specific discrete actions. So it certainly could develop into larger patterns. That might be your personal experiences. It might be your culture. It might be a lot of things. But for the purposes of a game, which is a discrete experience, I'm thinking of discrete actions. Does that work for you? Yeah, that's great. So mechanics influencing behaviors. Cool. So, uh, Jason, I'm thinking... I like this. It's very Socratic. We're just like... <laughs> I, we're on the clock. we got to focus. I know, right. Excellent. So, cool. So, what I would love to do... Uh, Jason, let me know what you think. Okay. I would love to go through uh, several examples of uh, games uh, where there are specific situations where there are mechanics, influence behaviors, and talk a little bit about like why that, why you brought that up, what interests you about it, and uh, maybe we can underline a couple points that people take away to inspire them when they're coming up with their own mechanics. That sounds good. Cool. So, do, uh, do you want me to start? Or yeah, you start. start. I think your list okay. is longer. Uh, well, this is just for inspiration. Oh, we don't okay. have to go through this whole right. thing. Okay. Okay. Good. Uh, great. In terms of. So we're going to go through, uh, again, more obvious and less obvious examples, right? So we want to build up a palette of uh, an array of options here so we can start to think about all the different ways this can all work. 
Uh, so I'm going to give some more and less obvious examples. Here's one that's in the middle. Uh, so in a lot of world-style games, let's use Monster Hearts as an example. So Monster Hearts is a game about teenagers in high school uh, where you're going through changes and you may not be aware of those changes uh, yourself. And there are a lot of queer metaphors in that game where there are situations where you might not know what your sexuality is. And in the moment, through play, you might just start to discover that, or a part of it, and it could keep shifting and changing, but it feels out of your control. So that's an area where you might feel uncomfortable, right? It's a challenging subject. Uh, I know in a lot of games, people feel really anxious when they lose control, right? So they're like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen, and I rolled this thing, and now the GM is telling me everything that's going on, and I thought my character's this, and now they're that. So how, what is the behavior there? For me... I want uh, people to participate in the experience of like a game about uh, being queer, right? And uh, fluidity and unknown sexuality and changes, but also on a player level, right? So we're talking about role-playing games. There's character and fiction content, but there's also player information. And from a player perspective, for me, I don't want you to disengage from that experience. So I want to do things that help you stay engaged. So what I, in that example, Monster Hearts, there's a move where you can turn someone on, and you start to discover your own sexual orientation based on the results of that move, which sounds like you're losing a lot of agency. But, clever, in a clever way, uh, Avery, the game designer, uh, she designed the situation where the agency goes back to the person who's been affected. So I turn Jason on. Which you do quite often. Excellent. Uh, and, well, and let's say in this situation, Jason wasn't aware that you would be turned on by Max. Oh, no. Okay. I don't know. I, I don't know, John. I, I'm not turned on by you. What's going on here? Okay. So, like, you know, we're doing things. Yeah. We, make the, we make the role. Uh, and then uh, Jason's character is turned on in some form or fashion. Oh, we're talking about character. Yeah, sucking oh. his character down. But as a player, as a player... Uh, I don't want you to disengage. I don't want you to feel anxious. Your character is losing agency, but now, as a result of the move, the player Jason gains agency, and Jason decides the results of that move. Uh, so you can uh, you can return being turned on, uh, like you can. Uh, what are some of the options in uh, terms of uh, term of birth? So folks know here. I'm playing it right now, but I can't. I'm spacing out. On ten plus, it's a string. Uh, on a 7-9, uh, promise something they think you want. Give yourself to them. Right. Uh, uh, let's, let's stop there. That's a great example. So, uh, Jason can promise to give me something that Jason thinks I want. That I think he wants. Exactly. That's the key there, right? Exactly. So, Jason as a player has full control over how that plays out. So, you're not. it's not like I rolled to seduce you now, Jason. Give yourself to me. The agency is given to Jason as a player. And then you make choices and decisions. Yep. And in, and in that case, the... Uh, you, you can see there's a little bit of design module there because give your give yourself to them is also an option, which is which is subsumed in give them something you think they want. But by making that uh, one of the options, it's saying this is what the game's about. This is a game about sex yeah. and sexuality, uh, which I, which is smart, right? Very smart. But that's hard. Oh yeah. An example for you, Jason. Okay. Well, uh, so this is actually funny. I was thinking about this and uh, trying to come up with good examples. And well, well my uh, my friend and business partner Steve was like, you know, there's some really good examples in games that you've written, and you're dumb for not thinking about that. <laughs> well, you're very close to it. That's true. I'm really close to it. So, so uh, the, uh, here, here's, a, here's a behavior that I see all the time, particularly at conventions where you're playing with strangers and people might not be particularly comfortable with each other, where someone is reluctant to make a creative contribution or uh, reluctant to sort of dive headfirst into the fiction. 
Uh, and that can be a problem in games where it's, you know, okay, it's your turn to roleplay, go, right? Entertain us. Right, right. You get the deer in the headlights thing, and people become really uncomfortable, and that can be a deeply unpleasant experience that turns somebody off to a game. Yeah. So when I wrote Fiasco, I thought about that, and uh, there's, a, there's a really simple solution in that game, which I think is a, a really nice piece of social engineering I'm very proud of, which is that when it's your turn, and you get a turn, it's your time to do a thing, you can either decide what's happening, uh, establish the scene, or you can resolve the scene. But you can't do both. And there's some theory behind this, but the, in play, what that means is that if, if, it's, if it's my turn and I'm not feeling it, I don't want to make a creative contribution, I can, I can effectively say that by saying, I want to resolve this scene. And not only does that allow you to let the smartest people in the room, who are your three friends at the table, give you something fun to work with, but it also means that you have agency over how it turns out. So it's doubly reassuring for the, the, the player who is having a, you know, a creative moment where they're not sure what to do or they're tired or they're just scared and don't know where to go. Uh, and uh, that's, I think that's pretty, a pretty direct example of social yep. engineering. Uh, so I just want to let you know, Jason, that I'm not happy with you. Did I steal a good example from you? You did. You just stole my example. Awesome. I'm going to talk about Jason Morningstar's framing example and all the behaviors are wrapped in it. But, you know, I'm just going to cross it off that list. Cross that right off. Excellent. <laughs> Back at you. What do you got? Okay, wonderful. Uh, let's talk about the game Mouse Guard. Okay. Uh, so in a lot of role-playing games, like you're leveling up, right? So it's like, I've got to get more power. i got to get more power. And a lot of times it's overcoming uh, you know, struggles and challenges. If let's say it's Dungeons & Dragons, it might be, depending on the version of D&D, like exploring and you get experience points, which then lets you get, become more powerful. It might be overcoming obstacles or defeating people in combat. Uh, but a lot of times, it, you know, depending on the kind of experience you're going for, uh, so Mouse Guard is a game where there's a lot of struggles and the adversity is huge. You're little mice in a world where there might be giant owls and wolves and bears and all these things. And for to fuel drama and reinforce the struggles that these small protagonists struggle through, uh, the mechanics want to encourage players to be okay with failing. Right, So th- that's a situation where in the fiction, and it's based on a comic book, so if I read the comic book, there's many situations where the characters are failing. So how do I, re- how do I reinforce this behavior in a game? How do I help players be okay with the idea of failing, especially, especially as they might be used to playing lots of games where they're constantly succeeding? So before I talk about how Moscow does this, I want to reinforce this idea that we all don't, many of us don't just play one game. Right? So because we play multiple games, we are influenced by the other games we play. So when we come to a new game, we bring a lot of that influence and those assumptions and those perceptions with us. So sometimes we have to work a little extra hard right, to effectively get someone to play in a way that's different than what they're used to, which is where system and mechanics can really help out. So in the case of Mouse Guard, uh, so in other games you're rewarded for success and rewarded for doing amazing things, so on and so forth. In Mouse Guard, you need a mixture of failures and successes to be able to level up your powers, your skills, and so forth. You literally cannot progress as a character and become powerful the way you might be used to in other games unless you fail, right? So it reinforces that, it makes it part of the game, and you feel great about it because you're getting something for it. Right. What about you, Jason? <laughs> oh, okay. So here we're talking about some more subtle, uh, subtle examples. Let's go back to like uh, original Dungeons and Dragons, right? White, in White Box D and D, there's very much an adversarial uh, adversarial relationship between the game master, the dungeon master, and the players. Uh, and fictional positioning is everything, right? So like 
when you're when you're playing that game, it's really uh, it, it it is part of the game's mechanics that your caller is going to uh, to ask and uh, defuse any potential situation everywhere you go. So you're you're in this sort of paranoid pixel bitching ex- exploration of a dungeon where you're worried about everything. You're you're thinking about the possible ways that you could be uh, killed at any time because in this adversarial relationship that the dungeon master really wants to hurt you and the result of that is is a style of play that clearly Dave Arneson at least really wanted to see you know which is where uh, you know you're underground and things are messed up and you're terrified and it does it quite well uh, without implicitly ever stating that but by very explicitly telling you how to play Cool. Yeah. That's good. Okay. <laughs> You'll buy it. I'll, I'll buy it. All right. I, I, I would love to use an example from this uh, game convention, game design convention itself, Metatopia. Yeah. Uh, the one chair rule. Yeah. So I want to start talking about some examples that might not seem so direct. Oh, right. That's a good. That's a good point. So uh, let's talk about the. Is uh, who here is not familiar? Not familiar with the one chair rule? Raise your hand. The empty chair. Empty rule. chair rule. Empty chair rule. Empty chair rule. So, uh, like half the people, give or take. So, uh, in social situations, especially where uh, you might be meeting new people for the first time, uh, where you might be coming to network, uh, where you uh, might be looking to just like meet new people and exchange ideas, any ways in which we can make you feel comfortable and, and feel welcome to give you opportunities to speak with other people is going to be part of the spirit of why we are all here. Uh, so. It's important to then look at the environment, like this is our environment, there are people here, we're sitting down in chairs, we're like, scattered about, here we're in a panel, outside, people are at the bar, they're having conversations. It's important to look at what is naturally occurring in the environment. And, and just uh, from a game point of view, this is system, right? Yeah. This is part of part of system, is the, the social environment we're in. Yeah, totally. Uh, so... If I look out there and I look for naturally occurring situations, I see people who are a bunch of people, they might be friends, but they have a reason to to be talking with each other, who are closely speaking and they are in a circle a lot of times, right? There's a lot of the tables out there are circles. And let's say it's a circle with four chairs and everyone's facing each other, it looks closed off. It literally looks like a closed circle, right? Which reinforces this idea of circles, of sort of networks of people and groups of friends, and you're outside the circle, so maybe you're not really invited here to be part of this conversation. So there's a rule here where... Uh, if an, you, an informal rule. An informal rule here, uh, where if you want to signal, right, if you want to signal to people that they are welcome to join your conversation, uh, you leave an open chair at your table or wherever you're gathered to come and speak. Uh, there's a secondary added rule where when someone comes and takes up that offer and sits down, you summarize the context of the conversation you're just having, right? So they, it's not just enough, like, you, we can introduce a rule, right, that, like, says, oh, yeah, you're welcome, but now we're talking about a bunch of stuff that you don't have any idea what we're talking about, you're confused, and then you don't feel welcome anyway, right? So sometimes it's not just that first step. We need to take it further to accomplish our goals there. So you put out a, a chair that's open so that people feel like they're welcome, and then you summarize where you currently are in the conversation so that they can join in. And when someone sits down, now there's no longer an open chair. So as part of that, uh, it's suggested that the, the a new open chair is brought to the table so that you can continue to signal to people that they're welcome to join. But there's two nuances here. One, what if you have a conversation that you don't want other people to join in on, right? Uh, you don't have an open chair. 
right? It like signals, hey, we're having, maybe we're having a business meeting, maybe we just played a very intense game and we're currently debriefing about our experiences in this game. It might not be the best situation to include uh, like a fifth person or additional person. So there's that. Uh, the other thing that tends to happen, which is kind of a beautiful effect, if all of us here are really excited about including more and more people, uh, there's a situation where if the circle becomes like 10, 20 chairs, we can't really hear what everyone's saying. Right? So then what naturally occurs, emergent play that occurs, is that the circle gets too big, people then take their open chairs and kind of pull away and form their own new circle that also has an open chair. So we're now creating this network effect right, where people feel included and we're busting out into different groups that are efficient to get everyone to being able to actually talk to each other and be heard. Awesome. This, uh, to, to bring this into like uh, your, your home play space, something that, that I do with my local crew is... Uh, uh, spouses and partners are always welcome at our table, and uh, it's really a delight when those people come and share a meal with us and sit down and play. Uh, and it may be that that's, that, that, that uh, on the surface feels very awkward because they're sort of diving into uh, the middle of a campaign or something, but it, from, a, from a social context, it's just gold because we get to get to know them better. They get to enjoy what their their spouse or partner who's with us every week is doing, and it's always a lot of fun. And that's just sort of a standard, standing rule that I encourage you to do too. That's an awesome addition, but it does not replace. No, I know, I know. It was just a, another just another example of inclusiveness <laughs> and being very intentional about le- leaving space, leaving space for, for new folks. That's interesting. Yeah. All right. No yeah. pressure. What? Oh, is it my turn? Yeah, it's to, your turn now. I don't know. You went off on that wild hair about the... No, it's true. Uh, okay. uh, and, <laughs> and credit where it's due, the uh, the idea of the open ch- empty chair rule comes from the Nordic countries, where they kind of have this stuff dialed. They do that at their conventions, and it works well, so we stole it. Uh, taking the blow in Dogs in the Vineyard. Whoa. Right? Okay, so you're incentivized to, to give up and fail. Yeah. Right? Which... Which uh, on the surface seems kind of like a drag, but uh, Dogs in the Vineyard is a game that, that very elegantly uh, incentivizes that mechanically uh, because you're, you're rewarded uh, for, for de-escalating or, or stopping a conflict, uh, which is very much uh, thematically appropriate in the game, and it always uh, gives you an, uh, a, a compelling, pardon me, out. Uh, of, of uh, a situation that's getting out of control, which is which is great as a player because you sort of know that the game has your back. Cool. I, I, I'd like to add on. To yeah, that, please do. Uh, which is that uh, I mentioned Mouse Guard before, and in that game, uh, you need a certain number of failures as well as successes to like level up your power and influence your skills. Uh, that's a, a situation that works really well in long-term play, right? You have multiple sessions. You're in a situation where you need a number of these things to then see the benefit of it. Uh, your example here of taking the blow in uh, Dogs in the Vineyard, right, where we're in a conflict and I could choose to basically like lose now, right? Uh, in a lot of ways, I can lose now to win later in some ways, and because of the way those mechanics work is we get to see the results and the benefit of that sooner. We don't need long-term play. It's a situation where in when we sit down to play with each other for, let's say, one to four hours, you actually see this in play. And when you see something in play, it's reinforced, and more people do it. That's a great uh, Which is why, like, in a game like Mouse Guard, it's something just to think about as, like, conventions, like, you're, you're uh, promoting your game. If your game is longer-term play, sometimes I know with Mouse Guard, people go in and they'll check some of those circles of successes and failures so people can see the mechanic in play rather than, oh, trust us, this will be how it works in the future. Social proof and examples really reinforce behavior. Awesome. What you got? 
Oh, it's my turn. Okay, cool. Do you want to talk about Arzamandi? Do you want to do Arzamandi with me? Sure. Okay, cool. Uh, so, so uh, in buffer LARPs, right? So you have LARPs where they want to, they don't want to just be like, okay, we're going to simulate combat and we're going to do rock, paper, scissors, shoot. They want you to feel like in a buffer LARP when you have a cool, badass weapon, the exhilaration of combat. Still being safe, right? They don't want anybody to get hurt. Uh, so they have these padded weaponry where we can like bop each other and we never get hurt, but we still feel the physical exertion of like waving these things around and trying to avoid to get hurt and we're sweating and exerting energy and it has the thrill of that while being safe. So it's a mechanic that simulates aspects of it, but while not actually crossing the line. Right. right. So I, I wonder if there are other things besides fighting each other that you could you could uh, do with that. Oh, that's interesting. It is. Uh, let's, let's 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 build on that, Jason. Okay. So let, let's <laughs> so you know let's let's take a genre or like a TV show like Game of Thrones, like book Game series, of Thrones, right? Game okay. of Thrones. There's lots of combat in that it game. It really right? is. There's lots of combat in that game. Bloodthirsty. Yeah. Uh, but there's also a lot of sex in that game. There is. Yeah. That's what I was thinking of. Whoa. <laughs> We've been building right. up to this but, but, but that's ridiculous because there's no really safe way to, for us to like simulate having sex in a LARP. I barely know you. Interesting. Well, I, I feel like you know me enough. But anyway, that's all. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do know you. <laughs> Separate conversation. Right. So, let's table that for now. Let's table that for now. Okay, cool. So, uh, I mentioned like weapons, buffer LARP, safety, right? So, in terms of safety, uh, especially with strangers, like, why would, like, you might be in a situation where you want to recreate aspects of the fiction of a genre that you're trying to recreate, like Game of Thrones or sex, but, like, how do we actually do that? Maybe we do it behind closed doors, so we say it happens, but we don't see it. But Buffalo Arps is about feeling the exhilaration, just having enough of that feeling uh, without, let's say, crossing a line for you personally, right? Mm -hmm. So, Arzamangi is a technique where they say, okay, how do you create a form of intimacy, right, that could represent sex uh, that doesn't go too far, right, in terms of, like, what people are comfortable with. And, of course, you know, it depends on the person, but right. in this circumstance here, uh, the mechanic they came up with is that you would basically extend your hands, and you would touch your hands together, and then you essentially could just, like, just gently, gently... <laughs> massage each other's hands a little bit. You can look into each other's eyes if you want. But if I'm not comfortable, I can close my eyes while I do this. So I still, you know, so I still feel a little bit of the intimacy going on here. You know, I can decide how much, or I, I can also pull, if I'm not interested, I can just pull away. Well, we, right? we can also agree on boundaries, right? Yeah. Like, like I'm an elbow guy. We're not going to be on my elbows. Yeah, sure. Right? Sure. So, like, you know, normally if, like, let's say it's uh, Arzamandi where I wanted to, like, but no, wait, Jason told me not to go beyond the elbow, right, so I'm going to stick to right, here. Okay. And we can decide how long this lasts. But right? we, can, we can also, and it can uh, simulate different kinds of intimacy, right? So, like, if we're just if we're just passionately crazy having rough sex, yeah, yeah. right? Let's do it! Whoa, so like, you yeah, know, gotcha. Kind of like wrestling more. <laughs> like, so like, you know, I, 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 I mean, I can point our fingers. Oh, I, mean, I don't know geez, how many yeah. examples right. we need, but, but I'm happy. The idea. <laughs> that was like monster heart sex. Okay. That depends. Depends on your character type. Okay, cool. So all monster arms. Back to you, Jason. Oh, okay. Uh, so Arzamandi. Oh, and I just uh, just as a sort of caveat. To, to, uh, and just a quick time oh. check. We have 15 minutes before we go to questions. Great. Awesome. Okay. So uh, and there's lots of ways to simulate intimacy. One that I dearly love is is in Russia. It's pretty common in, in their LARPs. Uh, men will carry a pencil, and women will carry a pencil sharpener. 
<laughs> and, and if they if, if they're going to engage in intimacy, they just get together and do what they do. And th- things like Arzamandi uh, came out afterwards, right? Because they were like, we don't want things that clearly uh, reinforce ge- gender normativity, right? So like Arzamandi is something that can like have a lot of gender fluidity built into it. Sure, absolutely. Uh, okay, more examples. Uh, here's a here's a counterexample, and I love this, and I think it's uh, it's actually. Uh, very appropriate to talk about games that unintentionally uh, modify player behavior. So, uh, uh, anybody familiar with Riddle of Steel? Not a few people, some nods. Okay, so Riddle of Steel is a, is a game that has a combat system that is so notoriously brutal that players just avoid it. Uh, oh, like, like, or like Rollmaster, I guess. Or Shadowrun. Or Shadowrun. Okay, Shadow. so there's lots of games where you're going to avoid combat. <laughs> all right, all right. Cyberpunk. Cyberpunk. Great. We all know a game where you're going to avoid combat, right? Uh, clearly, the, the people who wrote those games love combat, and they want you to fight, but they've written in a way that makes that, that's disincentivizing you engaging with the system. And so what you get is perhaps in many ways a more interesting game, because you're you're finding ways around those problems that you could otherwise solve with your vibro laser pistol, right? Or your your broadsword. Okay. Right. Anyway, okay. So that is a that I think, and we could probably find other examples of, of uh, game design that unintentionally uh, modifies player behavior in very specific ways that that uh, are maybe a net positive without the designers really considering yep. it. Uh, my friends used to joke that we became excellent uh, in-character uh, role-players slash uh, negotiators by playing Shadowrun because, like, one bullet, you're dead. Uh, we don't want that. So, like, someone would go for the gun and be like, whoa, whoa, we don't need to go there. Like, I know we spent three hours building this character and we bought five books about guns, but let's not actually do that. Uh, but anyway. We, we did a lot of shopping and we don't want to lose our gear. Yeah. Awesome. So uh, another example, and actually uh, this example Kira McGrand came up with, who's back there, uh, is there are a lot of uh, trapped-in-the-room games, right? There are these games where like you have a bunch of puzzles that you solve together as a team, but you're trapped in a room and cannot leave the room till the puzzles uh, are solved or the time runs out. And the specific part of that I want to call out is the time aspect, right? So like when you get a bunch of people together... And uh, let's say you have five people together and they have a whole day to come up with uh, solutions to a given problem. Uh, they're going to do, go about doing that in a very different way than if you put them in a smaller, isolated space and say, you've got 20 minutes and there's a countdown and it's up there and go, right? So like, it simulates the chaos of like, yeah, you know, here, let's negotiate, let's brainstorm, let's come up with ways to solve this. But now all of a sudden we have like 10 minutes left and then people are just acting faster, they're getting like, it just it changes exactly how they behave. Where if you took those same people and those same problems, and you could even keep them in a small, isolated room, but remove the time element, totally different game. Yeah, that's a great point. And that was Kira's point. Good idea, Kira. <laughs> See you, Kira. <laughs> oh, wow. A, a, a game that, that I love that really does very sort of subtle things about manipulating player behavior is 316. Uh, so in, in 316, uh, it's typically played as a one-shot, which is tragic, because when you, when you play it over time, uh, as your characters uh, gain power, they also gain hatred for home. And they, uh, the, the, uh, the game is, it, it tells a, a fairly complicated story about hegemony and violence that really only unfurls after you've played for quite a bit of time. 
Uh, and I, I find that fascinating because as a one shot, it's just like we're space marines killing bugs, woo! But when you're five sessions in, that's not the game anymore. But and it's never a game about really whether or not we're going to succeed. By the time you you know you're five sessions in, you're capable of killing a thousand enemies with one roll of your dice, uh, and it just escalates from there until you turn that hatred back on the planet you came from, which is fantastic. Cool. Uh, I, w- I want to use an example for my job, actually. Okay. Um, so, and it's funny because uh, when I started this job, there was all these elements that made, immediately made me think about games. Because also, like, I was like, wait, that's a relationship map, and these are characters, and they're interconnected this way, and this is like all like detailed in all the different games I play. I feel like I'm at this playing a story game 24-7 while I have this job. It's a little bit more stressful than that. But, uh, so, uh, to give an example... Uh, in uh, my job uh, working for the Department of Child Services, uh, we have situations where uh, children are uh, vulnerable and they might be taken out of a home, right? So they might be taken out of home and there's some sort of aid that is given to them. It could be placing them into a safer environment. It could be financial resources. It could be ways of rehabilitating a family, depending on what's going on. There's all these different ways to go about it. That said, uh, they have discovered via research that there are more and less traumatizing ways to help people. Uh, So if you take a child completely out of their environment and put them in a completely alien environment uh, and then frequently move them around, that increases the chances of trauma, right? So that we saw situations again and again and again where if you present information to caseworkers in a spreadsheet type format, uh, surprise, they don't think of people as people, right? So they just see numbers, right? So they're like, oh, look, there's, there's those numbers and there's a date, which I don't really completely imagine. I don't think of it as two years have passed. I think of there's a state that this thing happened and this thing happened. Uh, so uh, what we did uh, is we built a relationship maps around connections within families. Right, so if there's a child in a situation where something occurs and you need to figure out what is the least traumatizing uh, way to assist uh, this child, uh, it visualizes the entire whole network and all these potential people that could help in that situation, as well as places that they could go that are closer to their home or have more connections with them. Ways to uh, minimize trauma. And the reason, another reason why visualizing this was very important is caseworkers don't have a lot of time. We're talking about time. Right? So like if you're a con game and you like have two hours to play a role-playing game, you have limited time. So I might have a rule book of 200 pages with the most amazing rules possible, but if I don't know where that rule is and I can't access it, I don't have time to read through things and I, there's too much for me to remember, it doesn't matter how awesome that rule is, I'm not, it's not going to see play in the table. Uh, so it's the same thing. We build relationship maps to take the most useful information and present that in the most clear, quick, concise manner that gave people the tools they needed to place children in the best place possible to minimize trauma. Uh, and I can't give numbers of success, but let's just say it's been very successful. That's great. I'm wondering if we should open up to questions. Yeah, we could totally do that. I think we might want to. Uh, and we're, oh, I, I, we're hoping that you will have some examples as well from, from games that you've played that you think uh, have clear mechanics that influence behaviors. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And then also just to uh, generally talk about this. How much time do we have? So uh, it is 7.36. Uh, we want to end, I think, I think, at least five minutes early. That is the plan, yeah. So uh, let's say we have 20 minutes. So uh, when you either have a question or want to give us an example, uh, please keep it concise. Keep your question clear. We don't need a lot of background. If we need, want more background, we'll ask you. 
state your question clearly. If you have an example in terms of, here's this mechanic, say, it's this game, it's this mechanic, it influences this behavior. If we have follow-up questions, we will ask you, but we want to give everyone time to participate. Uh, that said, do we want to, anybody who's interested in participating, raise your hand. We'll start in the back, and then we'll move forward. That's fine. Okay. Awesome. Leave so, the red shawl back there. That's a good question. Yeah. We can both answer that. For, yeah. for me, it's playing with strangers, uh, which is always illuminating. Uh, uh, either, uh, but mostly other people's games, uh, and uh, that's that's uh, games on demand at Gen Con is like the crucible because you know I'll be running like eight games a day sometimes you know in two hour slots with people I don't know and I learn a ton about behavior and interaction and how to to craft a really a positive experience with lots of different games in that setting. How about so, you? I'll also answer that, and uh, a little bit of an overlap there, which is playing other people's games. Uh, and actually, let me take the word playing out. Observing other people's games being played and not playing them myself. So the, the point there being, uh, being in a situation where I'm as objective as possible, so I'm not biasing the the circumstance, and I can observe what's happening. And if I'm in the middle of play, I myself am being influenced by all these mechanics, and I don't necessarily notice everything that's happening. So observing instances of play and uh, writing everything that you observe down, even if you don't think it's important, because after the session's over, you might then go back and notice all these patterns that you didn't notice in the moment. So it's almost a user experience approach. Yeah, so if you go on an Amazon or a bookstore and look for UX uh, user research uh, or user interviews, you will get lots of tips to do exactly this. So hands up. Yeah, yeah. So maybe you and I could talk a bit afterwards, because uh, that's a larger topic. But smaller is better, uh, for sure, as you've already pointed out. Uh, because if someone's not used to playing these games or doesn't have a lot of time or there's a lot of chaos going around you, uh, you there's so many opportunities to lose them. So you need to focus in. Uh, cool, but let's talk afterwards. Hands up. Jason. Oh, sure. Uh, yeah, I was wondering, you had mentioned the uh, relationship map. Is there any data on that? Uh, I cannot reveal, uh, unfortunately, on, because of NDAs and things of that nature. Uh, but I will say that uh, for the stated purpose, is very successful in a data-driven proof of boy. Uh, any other questions? Cool. Oh, great. Uh, this fellow here, this handsome guy. Oh, no, it's you. Don't turn around. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking specifically of Microscope, okay, and and uh, to a lesser extent also Fiasco, in that there's a number of mechanics that specifically provide um, ultimate authority. Sure, the hot seat in Microscope. And the emergent property I've noticed is that they teach people restraint to respect the creative contributions of others. That's and a, I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. That's a that's a great example, uh, and I think. 
uh, well, should we? I don't know that we need to elaborate on that. It, it's it fixed format, right? It, it, that's a that's a wonderful example of. Uh, well, it creates clear boundaries. It communicates yeah. them to everyone around. Says this person is responsible for this very discrete, specific thing. Everyone else hears the behavior we expect, clearly communicating that, yep. and all the other things attached to it. So behavior's being influenced. Yep. Okay, hands up. Uh, I've got an example for you. Okay. Five Time Adventures, fan mail. Right on, okay. Uh, because by giving fan mail, you're actually getting two purposes. You're allowing players to reward the really cool contributions that other players make, and you're also then, by bestowing fan mail, allowing players to use it to become more engaged. That's a great example, and the brilliant thing to me about fan mail is that if it's if uh, nobody's giving it out, then the game's engine dr- dies, yeah. and the game is done. Like you, you're not in, you, you're not engaged in enjoying it, so you, should, you stop playing by default, which is really smart. So, so I'd like to add to that really quick. Uh, so fan mail for those who don't know, uh, if I do a thing and that you're excited about, you can give me a resource right that I can then spend in the game. Uh, and you're reinforcing, hey, John, I really like that thing that you're doing. Please do more of that. But as Jason said here, too, the economy of fan mail is needed to keep the game moving. So if this is not being distributed, the game starts to break down. So if you have a game, let's say, where you're, you get a plus one bonus to do this thing when you do this, because we wanted to see you do it more, but you actually don't need a plus one to succeed, then that's not really that important. There's no teeth to that mechanic, so it might not get used as much. Okay. Sarah... <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that's probably that's a good counter example. <laughs> <laughs> so, God, don't let us know how many hit points you have. Yeah, really. Um, so, something that I've noticed uh, in gaming stories that I think actually uh, uh, your, uh, your comment speaks to is um, very often I hear a lot of gaming stories about um, times when mechanics or something uh, influence behavior in a way that people kind of think. Um, uh, mechanics can influence someone to uh, act in some really bad way. Um, and sometimes this is just like a one-off thing that comes up in a gaming story, but um, I found that uh, a lot of times um, in certain circles, um, it seems like those kinds of negative behaviors are um, wanted or, or even fetishized sometimes. Um, and sometimes it seems funny to me, and sometimes it like gets to the point where I feel like it's, um, it's a little bit uncomfortable, and I'm, I'm not really sure why... Um, why a certain behavior, which everyone seems to agree is negative, is at the same time um, uh, encouraged? That's a big question. Yeah, yeah. and and, uh, and I think that's legit. You can you can see that. I, I, you probably have very specific examples, but I can think of. Uh, I mean, like that's what my character would do. You know, right? Uh-huh. It, is yeah. is a really toxic uh, sort of trope. Also, the like a comedic performance element to that. Like sometimes people doing bad thing is at least in the short term funny, mm-hmm. but it grinds down the spirit of the game in the long term. Sure. Right. Yeah. And yeah. it's the funny that people are chasing when they're going after it to some extent. And I would add, uh, you know, Jason, several times you uh, explained how mechanics can be uh, a lot of things that we don't really always perceive as mechanics, and how system can be all the different things that influence us to make decisions. So culture is one of those things, right? So our culture influences our behavior, but there's also culture as in our local group culture, or the people we <laughs> hang out with, and how we reinforce each other's behaviors. So in some ways, if the group is always often doing these negative things, but that reinforces that they are a group, and these are the things that they tend to do when they're together, then it's kind of part of their badge of honor 
is that we we tend to do this thing. It's not necessarily great, but you know, it's like it starts to become identity politics to some degree. There's all these different things that are influencing. And the takeaway there point for me is that you know, it's not just mechanics; it's culture, it's uh, the people around you, the people you play with, all those factors. That's a good question. Cool. Okay. Uh, so, when I run uh, Fiasco, I use the X card at uh, um, you know, at conventions and so forth because uh, I find it works really well. And my question is: Do you have you tried any alternatives to that X card deck thing? Uh, do you have any like additional advice? Just quickly say what the X card is. Yeah. Well, yeah. You didn't mention that in your introduction. I didn't. Uh, so. So, uh, just to, to make sure I'm answering your question, so you're talking about alternatives? Or you're yeah, like, have you tried any other, like, I haven't tried, you know, alternatives to an X-Card-like system, but, I mean, I use X-Card all could, the time. Maybe I, I could offer you a situation where how you could present it differently for people it doesn't work as well for, and then maybe that would cover that, too. Uh, so X-Card, what is X-Card? Uh, you give a little speech at the beginning of the game saying, hey, we're here to play this game all together. The people playing together are more important than the game itself. So we don't want to hurt each other. We don't want to make people uncomfortable, so on and so forth. Uh, as we play the game, uh, so as I'm talking about this, I'm reinforcing that we're all in this together, all of us as a group, people. Uh, and we're reinforcing that people matter more than this activity. And uh, then I'm taking a symbol where I'm like I draw, taking a card, I'm drawing an X on it, so there's a visual cue. Right? There's a visual cue to represent the communication that I'm making. I put it in the table and say at any point in a given time, if you're ever uncomfortable for any reason, uh, you can tap this or lift it or whatnot, and we will edit out anything that made you uncomfortable and move forward. And you don't need to worry about it. And uh, I may use this myself as a GM, so I'm reinforcing that I as a GM as, am an equal player in this table as everyone else. And again, we're in this all together. Uh, there's caveats that get added, things like you don't have to explain why, because some people say, well, if I use this thing, but then I have to explain why, I feel vulnerable and I feel anxious, and then I'd rather just suffer through this and not say anything at all. Uh, so to answer your question more specifically, uh, there are situations where some folks will immediately be like, fuck that, you know, like, I don't like, I don't want someone to, like, I, if I have a problem, I'll communicate to people what my problem is, and that's totally understandable. Uh, so I've noticed a lot of, like, uh, challenges to that or like uncomfortability and so a, a very simple thing I've tried doing that's been working very well is simply say hey uh, it, you don't have to use this right so you Jason if you're Jason are, are uncomfortable with something that I John have done uh, you can choose to say hey uh, John I'd like to bring up this thing I don't know how I feel about this can we talk about it cool uh, this is not saying you're not allowed to use uh, your language to communicate with people. What this is saying, though, is if you choose to use this, the, us as a group have agreed to the procedures in play for using this. And shockingly, I've seen people who are like super against it all of a sudden be like, cool, you're saying I don't have to use it, and I can still communicate other ways as long as I respect its use? I'm like, yes, and we're like, good. And then, and then you're going to go. Talking about mechanics influencing behavior, I will tell you that I, I use the X card religiously when I play with strangers uh, or at conventions. Uh, and uh, what I find over and over again is that I give my speech, and my speech has the words trust and love in it as expectations, which I think is really important and it has an interesting effect. When I say, here at table six, we trust and love each other, because I'm, I'm opting you in whether you want to or not. I, I just said that you trust and love everybody at the table, and I think that has an, a genuine effect. I, I don't. Have, it's anecdotal, but it seems to work pretty well. And what I find is that by laying that out well, with the with the, the the safety tools, they're very rarely used. Almost never. Almost never will yeah. somebody use them. But the fact that that I've established those boundaries and said I care about you, we care about each other, we're going to play in a way that is respectful and safe, 
we play in a way that is respectful and safe. Cool. Uh, so hands up. We have seven minutes left. Me saying there's seven minutes left is a mechanic that's influencing behavior. I hope you all be focused <laughs> in your questions. <laughs> so so well, seven minutes uh, left. Uh, yes, Very quickly, just as a follow-up from another domain, uh, when we do focus groups with students and college students uh, about sex, drugs, other sensitive topics, we do a yellow card, red card, like soccer. So if we're approaching a part of the conversation that's beginning to make you uncomfortable, we should step back. The student raises a yellow card. But if the conversation needs to stop and completely backtrack, then it goes to red. That's a good that idea. way, if they really raise the yellow card, we can gently come back off the topic without having to stop, figure out what made them uncomfortable, sure. and go back to that point. Yeah, that's a great idea. Thanks for, for awesome. mention. Okay. Um. Uh, I'm curious if anybody can think of an example here of a game or rule, maybe a social engineering principle, where people have more fun the less well the less well they know the other people. You know, it's, uh, it's, or it's something that really pushes people towards that. So. What are you coughing about? I, I think somebody. Well, explain yourself, Rob. Diplomacy is a game whose primary function involves negotiating whether people make promises and then lying to them and breaking deals. It is a very hard game on friends who, uh, if you treat your interactions with your friends in play as, as social interactions, it can be very hard on friendships. If you are playing with people you don't know, you are all interested in playing the game, those guys. then there's no problem. Yeah. That's awesome. That is a fantastic example. Yeah. Diplomacy. Awesome. Uh, hence... Uh, so my day job is specifically what you're talking about. I, um, I make video games for NIH to treat doctors who are trying to like diagnose patients and mm -hmm. also uh, substance abusers. So we make games that try to influence that behavior. Um, as such, we have to, one, test our, our stuff and prove that it actually modifies behavior. Yep. Um, and we also have to have, we have strict ethical standards. Sure. We're technically experimenting on human beings even though these are games. Um, and that's where I was going to say, um, so even when we're not dealing with it on yeah. such strict uh, and serious matters, how do you involve um, behavior modification with playtesters? Because if they're aware of what you're trying to do, that may influence it differently than someone who just ends up getting later. Interesting. Uh, so for me, I know it depends on the circumstances and the stakes. So if it's a situation where behavior is being modified in any way that like could be like long lasting or potentially like a negative thing, which is subjective, so it really depends. I again like to do uh, be transparent, right? I like to be very clear about here's what uh, is in this document, here's what we're doing. Uh, you can read this. You don't have to read this. I'm just letting you know that you have this opportunity and option. But to what you're saying, there's some circumstances in which uh, by letting people know how this process works, it might have less of an impact, right? Uh, and I do personally struggle with that. I don't have a right answer for that, but I know like using Monster Arts as an example, there's this thing there where uh, the turn someone on mechanic makes a lot of people uncomfortable, but being uncomfortable is part of the process of like really questioning why am I uncomfortable? Like what about this, which I think maybe more about, uh, and like painting it out in such a mechanical way beforehand sometimes could lose some of that impact. So I'm, I'm, I apologize for not giving you a necessarily great answer, but I think that it's important for us to explore all the context. Uh, thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. So, since you were so good with the terms, is there a functional difference between influence and teach? The difference between influence and teach? Is there a functional or is there one? I think there is, yeah, right. absolutely. Um, I, I mean, it, that, that difference might be largely 
romantic. But but now it. I, I mean, I feel like when I think of teaching, I think of teaching outside of the context of a game. There right? doesn't yeah, there doesn't have to be a pedagogy to influence somebody. Yeah. But I think there kind of does if if your intention is to edify. Okay. That's where I'm, I'm at. Yeah, I have to think about that yeah. more. But thank you for raising that. Question. Uh, we still have three minutes. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we haven't heard from you. Um, so back in World War One, there was that uh, scholar Johann Huizinga who was looking at how horrible the world war was, World War One, and he was like, "Well, I'm only a scholar. What can I do?" So he wrote that book, writes that book, Homo Ludens. And for me, like the, the thesis of that book is, in order to save the world, game games will save the world because it functions as a crucible for practicing the behaviors we want. Most of the stuff you talked about was short term modifications of behavior. In your personal life, have you seen longer term modifications of your behavior because of game? What was his name? Uh, Johann Wiesinger. H-U-I-Z-E-N-G-A? H-U-I-Z-E-N-G-A. Uh, <laughs> 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 my, uh, my gut impulse is to say yes, although it's hard to quantify, yeah. right? It's a, that's a really challenging question. I know that games have been profoundly beneficial for me uh, personally, you know, as a thinking, caring, rational person. I, I could give a shallow example. Sure. Um, Go like, for it. Uh, back before the Amber Diceless role-playing game and bad stuff, which is basically you have, if you have bad stuff, you have more points for your character, but things go much more poorly for you. Um, I was a bad stuff magnet playing, playing that and had never really been into the idea of failure as an enjoyable experience in role-playing until I hit that. And we're talking like 20 years ago. Sure. From that point forward, I'm like, ooh, failure, it's the fun design space, it's the fun place to play in. And I kind of see a line from that to things like Fiasco, which is really kind of a failure party. Right. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, that's not a place that I really would have looked for in terms of, like, the entertainment I consume, in terms of whether it's games or not games. Um, I, except for that one little thing that yeah. I'm like, ooh, this is, this is a fun place. I found a new that's fun. That's a great example. And I would, I would add to it, like, I know for myself, uh, playing lots of games is practicing talking to people and parsing yeah, out information and active listening uh, and made me better at like leading meetings and working with people in workshops and doing creative tasks with groups. Empathy. Empathy. Uh, you know, so all of those things I would say are positives that I've been able to take from games and to bring into the real world. Uh, that said, we are out of time. I want to thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you.